Uh, this morning, we do have a guest speaker um, that has come uh, from Milwaukee campus. His name is Jesse Matthews. We've had him here uh, a couple of other times. I'm always excited uh, when he comes to preach. Uh, I appreciate his handle of the word and, and how he encourages and challenges us, uh, and even me uh, personally. Uh, I think some of the times that we've had coffee uh, is some of the greatest times I've had in that iron sharpening iron aspect. Uh, and so uh, we'd like to welcome Jesse up uh, to be able to share what God has put on his heart. I feel very welcome. Thank you. Good morning. My name is Jesse, and Josh asked me to share and continue in our series of Second Peter. I'm very excited to do that and privileged to do that. I will say, though, that the content today of the passage that I'm going to share on is a little bit heavy and weighty, so I will be like an unwelcome guest today. So just buckle up for that. Um, yeah, let's see what God has for us this morning as we work our way through the book of Peter, Second Peter. It is content that is certainly part of the gospel, and it is theologically weighty for us and pertinent to our sanctification as believers, and also uh, pertinent and important to uh, unbelievers for their salvation. This is what the Apostle Peter, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Second Peter. But there were also false prophets among the people. There, were, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. The second epistle of Peter is similar to the first. Uh, there's, to me, there's a tone of warning, like Peter's uh, alert level is raised. First Peter 5, the end of his first epistle, which is very similar, he says, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered for a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. So Peter is saying in both of these letters, I, I believe, uh, hold fast, people of God, and be alert. And Second Peter, where we are today, is akin to Peter's farewell speech. Peter believes... He's going to die. Uh, he, he believes that Jesus told him so. And that's what happens. Historically, also. Uh, he does die. And uh, Peter's warnings, his concern, are similar to Jesus in John chapter 17, where Jesus is um, more pr primarily concerned with a spiritual battle taking place, with a real enemy. There are physical hardships that these persecuted and bewildered Christians are undergoing. But Peter recognizes there is an imminent danger beyond the physical. That there are to be many Christians led astray by false teaching, false worldview. You've heard of YOLO. YOLO, right? What's it mean? You only live once. Exactly. You only live once. On the one hand, uh, our Christian faith feels kind of YOLO. It feels like death is imminent. 
Let's be aware of that. Let's be concerned. Let's keep that on the forefront of our mind. It's realistic and good. It can prevent you from, uh, YOLO can prevent you from wasting time, the little time we have left. Scripture describes your life as a vapor and your body as temporary. It even goes so far as to describe your body as a tent, which I think is rather grotesque. But there is something YOLO about our existence. However, typically YOLO, as we know it, you only live once. If you've ever heard that sort of moniker or phrase or mantra, uh, if you've heard that, typically it leads to terrible decisions. Uh, we know this because our internal DEFCON level is raised whenever we hear a teenager say anything about YOLO. We think of like they're going to do like a Tide Pod challenge or something terrible. You only live once, so let's make stupid decisions, and it's fine because we die soon anyways. If we zoom out for a moment on the book of Second Peter, uh, this is similar to what the false teachers are saying to the believers that Peter had a relationship with, that taught in Peter's time. They were saying, where is he? Where is Jesus? Look around. He didn't come back. There was no judgment day. There will be no final reckoning. So we should live as we please, what's best for our lives, as we deem. Not this Jesus who would lord over us, whom you apostles embellished. So do what you want, people. Looks like there's no consequence. After all, you only live once. Judgment day, they were saying. It's not going to happen. Ain't going to happen. Would have happened already. And Peter says, no, you don't understand. You didn't know him. I saw him. I saw Jesus exalted in the transfiguration on the mount. And all the prophets speak of him. Peter agrees that he has not come back yet. Jesus has not come back yet. But assures them, these false teachers, that one day Jesus is going to. And he encourages the believers that God is patient. His timing is different than ours. The believers must remain steadfast and consistent in obedience. Peter encourages the believers to rest in light of Jesus' ultimate sovereignty. So as to not be obsessed with the second coming of Jesus. That their faith and their actions hinge on their timing, not God's timing, of when he's coming back. Peter encourages the believers in Second Peter not to be distracted by the Roman Empire and the current events of the day. Not to be obsessed with current events, albeit dangerous at that time. The American church probably doesn't need to hear that, right? We are great at steadfastly resting in Jesus and the commands of Scripture regardless of what is happening around us. Maybe you guys are. Peter uses words like diligence, patience, established. He says in chapter 1 that we've covered in the past week here in this church, self-control with steadfastness. Self-control with steadfastness. It's a phrase used in chapter 1. In a very tumultuous time, Peter uses that phrase. So on the one hand, it is the opposite of eat, drink, for tomorrow you die, YOLO. And yet, chapter 1, verse 13, in Second Peter, he says, I think it is right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon. The putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure... You may be able at any time to recall these things. So he's doing both. Recognizing 
Death is coming. Life is temporary. Jesus indeed will return. And therefore, be steadfast. The opposite conclusion to YOLO, if we can call that a worldview. He says we are either going to die soon or Jesus is coming back and therefore be patient, be steadfast. So I'd like to reclaim YOLO, reframe YOLO for us as a church, and I would like to purport the idea of YOLF this morning. Peter's saying, hey, you guys only live forever, so be patient, be steadfast in your obedience your faith, to the teachings of Jesus and to the apostles. Your eternity, your relationship with God, it's already happening. In the church, I think we need more yolf in times of chaos and dissension. Believers must never stop growing as participants in the divine nature, which is all about what chapter one is about. Those characteristics that Josh likely covered. Participants and the divine nature. So hold fast. That leads us up to chapter 2, which we are today. Hold fast in those precepts. In, be steadfast. Be patient. Be earnest. Be consistent. Even in a, just a crazy time. And then chapter 2, the beginning of it is, and be alert. A warning. Stay alert to what? False teachers. People teaching or spreading that which is not of God, heresy. Because there was and is and always will be false teachers. Verse 1 of chapter 2. There were, also, there were also false prophets among the people. There will be false teachers among you. And strangely, we can take some heart in that. False teachers have always been with us. All the way back then. In the book of Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, foretold in Matthew 7, Matthew 24, Acts 20, 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Timothy. Okay, so why be alert to them? Why, why note them so, Peter? First and foremost, because heresy isn't harmless. Heretical teachings lead people into eternal separation from God, which is, again, Peter's ultimate concern. Not necessarily the current events of the time. The etymology, the deeper meaning of the word heresy, is to make a choice. A heretic, a heretic, a heretical person, is a person who wishes to choose what is right and what is wrong. Doesn't seem so bad. Will, William Barclay, a famous theologian, once wrote, uh, A heretic is a man who believes what he wishes to believe instead of accepting the truth of God that he must believe. The natural state of humans is to believe in a generic spirituality. When I was in Iceland, um, I heard about and uh, had conversations about the general sentiment that it's just hard not to believe, it's difficult not to believe in some sort of intelligent design. We have creation all around us, always kind of screaming, this was purposed, this, this, this didn't come from nothing. In fact, everything that science teaches us is that uh, it's impossible for something to come from nothing. And here we are. Something. And then from there, from a generic spirituality, which is common, which is natural for, the, for, for man, for woman, is to then pick and choose what you believe is truly right and truly wrong. 
In other words, in its simplest form, heresy is choosing what is healthy for you, self-selecting the opposite of submission. Rebellion to the Word of God, a lack of submission, let's be honest, church, and I, I'm plagiarizing a teacher that I recently heard say this, sin is pleasurable. It's easy. The consequences of sin, we know, may not always be pleasurable, but we seek sin when it suits us. Often it feels good. Sometimes it even feels healthy. A lot of marriages are broken in the name of mental health, as an offensive example this morning, or a path toward mental health. Submission to the Lord is submission to his teachings, not our best secular interpretation of our health. And I'm going to nerd out really hard right now for about 35 seconds. So if you don't like getting too heady at church, you can just tune me out for like 40 seconds. Just put your feet up. Okay, here we go. I said just now, I said submission to the Lord is submission to his teachings. And who did he teach most in his life? Go ahead. Who did Jesus teach the most? His disciples, right? Whom he instructed then at the Great Commission to go teach everything that he taught them, everything that he commanded them. And he empowered them by his spirit to go do that. Therein we have the New Testament, including the book we're in right now. The New Testament, which was affirmed by the early church fathers prior to the Nicene Council, prior to the formation of the Catholic Church, these early church fathers agreed and confirmed and affirmed that these letters through real relationship, they actually knew a lot of these guys, were written by actually Jesus' disciples, including Paul, who met the resurrected Jesus. Now, Paul was disputed whether or not he was a valid apostle by the apostles, of course. I mean, seriously, if you walked around with Jesus for three years— and were taught by this rabbi, and he did these amazing miracles and proved himself to be what he said he was through these really cool, enigmatic ways. And then Paul comes along, you dispute it. But Paul was later affirmed and confirmed by the apostles to have met the resurrected Jesus. And these guys happened to continue to perform the same kinds of miracles as this rabbi Jesus. Exorcisms, healings. Over and over again, uh, one portion of Scripture says they performed extraordinary miracles. I'll take a normal miracle, personally. And these letters, uh, the authors themselves, the apostles at times would write and, and talk about how they are empowered in their writing as they write in the letters. Empowered by the very Spirit of God. And sometimes they even, they even wrote, what I'm going to say next is not of the Spirit of God. And this is in part where we get our framework for the New Testament. What is the New Testament? Prior to the Nicene Council, like I said, prior to the formation of the Catholic, Catholic Church. And, and concerning the Old Testament, Jesus himself affirms it very clearly, very intensely. So everyone else can tune back in now. If you're a non-nerd, come back with me right now. The question for you this morning is one question, I should say. Uh, when you deviate from Scripture, let's say even slightly, is it taken seriously in your life, in your family? 
Do you have discussions about what Scripture does and does not command in your family or friend groups? Is Scripture on your mind, on your lips, on your heart? Do you value it? If so, do you value it generally or specifically? Let's work through this. Second Peter chapter 2. There will be false teachers among you. So this isn't Peter saying there's going to be false teachers out there. This is Peter talking about people in the church. There will be false teachers among you who are familiar with, uh, in our context, for lack of a better term, conservative version of Christianity, meaning stringent, specific adherence to the teachings of Jesus and his apostles. Those who deconstruct Jesus and the Bible will be insiders, Peter is saying. After all, how can you properly deconstruct and dismantle that which you do not understand? There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. So the heresy, the false self-selected deviations from what we know as Orthodox Christianity, as Scripture, they'll be smuggled in, they'll be secretly brought in, which sounds about right. Maybe never in history has a false teacher said, I'm a false teacher. I bring you distorted theology. In the Greek, the word uh, used for secretly here means secretly. Actually, when I, when I, in preparation for this, when I was reading over what each word means, uh, the word secretly was like purposed stealth, and I was like, okay, that's what secretly means. Okay, we don't need the Greek for that. Anyway, in our case uh, today, the heresy, the false teaching that is dangerous to our spiritual life is especially more stealthy and secretly brought in because it's typically, typically, I should say, it's typically not a guy who like pulls up in a wagon peddling a new philosophy, directly speaking against Jesus. There's no like shysty stranger showing up in our town square, and, and, the, and then the kind of the people in the town go, I heard there's a new teacher. Let's gather around, right? Like that doesn't happen. Although, uh, that does sound like an awesome time to live if that happened. Like a traveling cult leader pulls up in a wagon, and you can publicly debate him in a forum. That, maybe nothing makes me more excited than that actually that forum having existed in history. No, our current heresy, our, our, our current false teaching that, that we face primarily it has no face. It is not a specific teacher. It's tectonic. It is invisible, but it can be seen everywhere. It is the God of the age. It's good stuff, too. That's weird what I just said, by the way. Josh, let me preach, and I'm preaching, and I just said the heresy of the age is a lot of good stuff. That's messed up, so hopefully that makes you listen a little bit more right now. It's health. It's human flourishing. It's the propagation of the species. It is equal opportunity for all. It is family. It is choice. It is extending the human lifespan to the greatest possible number of years in as much comfort as possible. It is career fulfillment. It is the feeling you're making a difference. It often manifests in the prioritization of family and safety and good works and its methods are technology and government and social studies and medication and education and active listening and sometimes religion and family tradition and prayer and meditation or yoga even for its cognitive benefit. It's a lot of good stuff. And it's hard to disagree with. It has its roots 
in the Judeo-Christian ethic. It came from Jesus, from that which Jesus injected into the first century. It is humanism. And its followers wield the word of love. They wield the word love and throw aside scripture and Jesus only when it disagrees with them. And if you think I'm making too big a deal of this, if you think I'm all like uppity about humanism right now, like too uppity about it, I, this is not theoretical for me. Like I have lived through this. Um, I have seen a good intentioned Christian faith community, a church upended by the heresy of humanism. The combination of Christianity with human approval and politics. With the original partial Good intent of bridge building, of evangelism, being a good neighbor. In fact, in the case that I experienced, uh, it was almost hyperbolic in nature in that it was an actual guy. It wasn't just like the God of the age. It was one of my best friends, in fact. I grew up in the faith of him. I learned about Jesus alongside him. And uh, we planted a church together. It was uh, a church that uh, was purposed around the concept, uh, the fact that 50% of Americans will never darken the door of a church. They'll never come in even. And that frustrated me. And so I too was trying to build bridges. Like, how can we have like kind of like TED Talk sermons and, and, and make it like where people actually consider Jesus instead of just going, that's a subculture that I disagree with. And so I brought along my friend. And I said, man, this is my heart. I, I want people to know Jesus. But most people just think that Christians are fooled and, have our, and aren't even thinking. What if we made a church that, like, we actually think about the concepts of the day? What if we argue against the philosophies of the day in the name of Jesus? And there were some beautiful moments. But it, that community, uh, my, my buddy, uh, who, whom I let teach most of the weeks at this faith community, um, I found out later that he, uh, he was ultimately a humanist. A false teacher who purported the divinity of Jesus, but ultimately bent the knee to human flourishing, as he deemed it. The health of the human brain and the propagation of the species. And he devised a way to create moral constructs using sociolo uh, sociological and psychological studies. And the data and conclusions from those studies, even Jesus had to bend the knee to. Even Jesus must be contextualized to us. He is divine, my friend said. But he was in a context. And his commands and his apostles' commands must be contextualized to us. Which led to a massive picking and choosing from scripture and ultimately a deconstruction of the faith and an embracing of humanism today as the primary sermon topic of that faith community. As I said, humanism, its followers wield the word love and only throw aside scripture and Jesus when in disagreement. Only when the words of scripture disagree with the good things I mentioned earlier is scripture then jettisoned. And with a light reading of Scripture, a cursory summary of Christianity, there is no need for disagreement. Both can coexist. In fact, both can agree. As long as we stay away from the minutia of Scripture and make sure to zoom out. As long as we aren't too zealous 
and too legalistic about the specific teachings of Jesus and the prophets and the apostles whom Jesus confirmed and affirmed. Then both worldviews, humanism and Christianity, may coexist peacefully, easily. After all, humanism came from Christianity. And when the Bible grates against humanism and the good things I mentioned, when it causes tears and pain and bad and sad emotions and cognitive dissonance, for example, hell or God instructing you how to live out your own sexuality. I figured I'd keep it really light topically today. When the Bible brings a challenge to what you define as love and good and right, and more pertinently this morning, when the Bible commands you to do things, what you need to do, the method that you need to employ to fix the pain and the cognitive dissonance, the biblical hermeneutic you must employ is either don't read the Bible that much, or when you read the Bible, just look for the overarching lesson. Like, so, so, so presuppose your own definition of love and good and right, and then bring it into Scripture, and then look for the overarching lesson that kind of fits your interpretation. That's what you must do to not feel extremely painful if you're a humanist Christian, while also wanting to read the Bible authoritatively. authoritatively. Like, listen to these commands. He, uh, one, first one is out of Hebrews 10. Uh, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Confess your sins to one another. Or perhaps that sex outside the marriage covenant, the definition of that is fornication, which is sinful. Or when you read about, read about tithing or giving or income, when, uh, when you read about that, that Paul says for all believers that they should earnestly seek all the gifts of the Spirit. That believers should be laying on hands and praying for one another in your spiritual family. Praying for the sick, some with a highly contractable skin disease like leprosy. Keeping the Sabbath. When we read these, what should we do? If we read these as not for all Christians for all time, or simply contextual, or part of a general lesson or story of love, not as specific commands as the false teachers uh, in Peter's time were purporting. Kind of do as you please. I mean, that sounds selfish or couched. Uh, it, it sounds selfish when, when I say it like that. It's not, uh, humanism sounds selfish when I say do as you please. But it, if we couch it in a greater definition of love, then we can, we can kind of redirect it and feel like humanism is the top of the totem pole, Christianity is the second, and love is what Jesus meant for, and we're going for that. Does that kind of make, does it ring true what I'm saying? Have you guys ever encountered this? This God of the age? It sounds selfish, but if couched in a greater humanistic ideology, it doesn't feel so selfish. We read about John on the island of Patmos in the book of Revelation, instructing the church to die if it comes to it. Instead of following Rome's prohibition to gather. In Jesus' name. It's, it's, it's intense. He's saying, John is saying in the book of Revelation, I saw the throne of God. There were 24 elders around it, which is the same number of gods in the pantheon, still today in Ephesus. I saw the throne of God, and it's not Domitian, it's not Domitian who's on it. It's not the Caesar. It's Jesus. Don't bow down. Don't discontinue your practice of Christian life. 
Do not cease gathering in Jesus' name. And they didn't. These Christians kept gathering for worship and for prayer and for the laying on of hands of the sick and prophecy in a physical space together. And they were killed for it. Their children lost parents. Parents lost children. And God used his church to accomplish his ends regardless of what anyone else in culture thought, even if it meant death. And Christianity thrived in that environment. An environment of zealous believers willing to follow the teachings of the apostles and of Jesus Christ. What would, we, what would we do in the face of that kind of danger for our children, for us? Loosely based on my extra-biblical reading of the first and second century, uh, I would say there's about a 30 to 40% mortality rate for Christians gathering in that region. Well, depending on the region. It, it varied slightly, but there were some regions where it was up to 40, maybe 50%, given that uh, Domitian and Nero were just out to kill anyone gathering in Jesus' name. John's challenge to the church was peaceful, was a peaceful but potent opposition to their government. So let's say you're living in that time and you're looking for like the kind of greater interpretive lesson there rather than the dangerous command to continue meeting and gathering and practicing your Christian life. I mean, I probably would be looking for the sort of larger interpretive way to read that. If you zoom out, what does Jesus' life tell you about avoiding danger? Or perhaps making life about the extending of your lifespan, of your human lifespan, of earthly flourishing. What is the apostles' lives? What do they tell you? The apostles who had families. Most Bible-adhering Christians would say they follow Christ over humanism, of course. Christ-centric, not human-centric, of course. None of us feel like heretics, fooled by the current prevalent world philosophy. We feel right, but how do we determine what is right? Everyone chooses a way in this life. Look at my, uh, my microphone is falling apart. All right, I think I got it. Everyone chooses a way in this life. Even the agnostic, the person that's going, yeah, I'm just not sure what's true. They're still choosing a way. That's something that Pastor Tommy uh, once told me when we were arguing on an airplane on our way to Rwanda. Uh, he said, listen, everyone chooses a way. I'm going with scripture. I was very annoying in that conversation, by the way. Everyone chooses a way. I'm going with scripture. It's a very simple mantra and a very true. My favorite part of it is it's hard to argue with. Everyone chooses a way and I'm going with scripture. I'm going with scripture as prescriptive and authoritative. If scripture is supposed to be real and read as a general, uh, sorry, if scripture is supposed to be read as um, a general lesson of love, then tell me how you interpret the story of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, sorry, Abraham and Isaac. I'm like dyslexic, dyslexic right now. I'm going to repeat what I just said because it's very important. Some Christians, a lot of Christians today in this day and age, they read scripture as interpretive. Draw the lesson that you interpret out of whatever story. So when we zoom in on the story of Abraham, Abraham and Isaac, what do you get out of that? It's a story about God saying, Abraham, kill your son. And Abraham goes, 
well, I don't want to. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem good and healthy. But okay. What do you get out of that lesson? Now, I'm glad that the living God happens to be a God who does not want Isaac's blood. That's good news. But that's up to God. What God requires of Abraham and of me is submission. I will trust in the Lord with all my heart and lean not unto my own understanding and in all my ways submit to him and he will make my path straight. So without understanding, I will submit to him and trust in spite of understanding that all his, his definitions of what is good and love and right are better than mine. Second Timothy 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but will have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. In other words, they will find teachings in Scripture. They will read Scripture and find teachers that, that um, bolster, that, that, that support their way of thinking so that they feel okay with their lives and how they're living. James 4, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Yolf. I don't want to worship my life. I want to worship God who has become my life. But I am so prone, and this is a confession, I am prone to, I am prone to find teachings that fit the way I want to live. To go with my gut. To go with what I feel is right and healthy. That is the false teaching of our age. Leading me to do and say what I want. To self-select instead of being the man of God that God is calling me to be. Who reads the word of God and treats what God commands as sacred and necessary over my conduct, over my thought life. I don't want to treat everything as not that big of a deal which is what a lot of men do in our culture. It's not that big of a deal. I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to live my whole life like that. It's not that big of a deal unless it's my money or my family. And we got to do this together. If we don't do this together, then we will ultimately not be the church that God wants us to be. We'll not be his body, the body that, of Christ that God is calling us to be. Church history shows us we can, we can majorly screw it up and miss out, and God allows for that. You all agree? That's what we get from church history, from the history of the church, which is depressing. I remember oh, taking my first college courses in church history, and that's all it was. It was just like people rejecting the way of God. I mean, there was some really good stuff, and there were a few players that were like, no to all the sin. But most of it was like corruption. We can miss out. We will ultimately sidestep God and embrace humanism that is not Christianity unless we have, like, a reckoning, a change of heart. And if you're a parent this morning, let me— uh, if your life has become uh, more about your children than anything else, let me appeal to you for a moment philosophically and pragmatically. I get it. First of all, I'm a parent as well. Uh, we are trapped in time and space. So there's a lot there with our kids. 
But let me appeal to uh, your familyanity if, if your main worldview has become that accidentally. Parents, you are teaching your kids right now the deepest priorities that you are about. They're seeing it. They're passively, passively observing it. They're involuntarily taking it in, what you believe are the deepest priorities. And you're unable to hide it. Are they seeing you uphold and prioritize the Word of God? Or do they see passively that family is the actual priority? And Christianity works well with that. Christianity is like a family tradition uh, of being good and not mean and working hard and saying that Jesus is God. Maybe it's their success or your success that they see in your life as a priority. Or safety or protection. I told you this is going to be heavy today. Safety is important. Their well-being and development is good. It's good stuff. But do they see that you are asking God to invade all of your plans, your entire schedule, whatever that looks like? Partially that means like spending time with your kids. Do they see God invading your budget? Do they see you truly a part of a spiritual family, which is the family of God because of the commands of God? Or do they see you uh, as spiritually empowered? Do they see you as a functioning part of the body of Christ? The metaphors we get in Scripture of the church are Christ's body and Christ's, Christ's spouse. What do you think is going to happen when they go off to college? Like I said, sin is pleasurable. It's often easier. It feels right. It feels compelling. Their inner voice, voice will say, uh, in those moments, I feel lonely. I don't want to feel lonely. I... I uh, I want to be more fulfilled. And the sin that's in front of me, the temptation, feels like it'll make me more fulfilled, whatever it is. There's all kinds of, of, of ways the flesh wants to bring destruction in our lives. What does an unsubmissive, Christian-colored humanism have to say in the face of that kind of temptation, the kind that leads to spiritual destruction? Do you think that you're modeling and they're in teaching Submission to a master a lot of Christians don't even know how to do that they, They've never had a model for that how to actually submit beyond their feelings a Lot of people a lot of people's stories and it's okay. The, the gospel has room for this, but Many Christians have the story of well. I finally went to God when I realized sin doesn't work and then in my selfishness I wanted something else that wasn't sin. That's not like, that's not the destiny for all Christians, people. That's not, that's not like the, that we're all gonna, gonna hit totally rock bottom and be, and our lives be totally almost destroyed. And then we'll pick Christianity because we're like, oh, I guess that doesn't work. Second Peter 2. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Master, the word here that Peter uses, master, is the word despotis. And it, it is where we get our word despot, not used very many times in the New Testament. So take this in proportionality, Christians, this morning. But it is used several times, including uh, in the New Testament, uh, including one here, and also in Acts 4 when Peter and John are let go of their inquisition, they cry out, Sovereign Lord, 
the word they use there is the same word. Again, not commonly used, only four times in the New Testament, is despotis. It means slave owner with complete authority. Slave owner, meaning uh, owner of people, meaning here that God bought us and owns us. It's terribly off-putting in this day and age in many respects. And I was thinking of maybe not zooming in on the word here because I too have a, a good chunk of false teaching and humanism and God shouldn't seem mean, especially on Sunday to Christians. I prefer good, good father actually over despotis, uh, which is also in the New Testament. Certainly. Thanks be to God. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master, the despotis, who bought them. Why would Peter use this word here? What Peter is calling false and heretical is the teachers are throwing out the truth that Jesus is our rightful master, our despotis. Uh, these teachers are denying the reality that Jesus bought us and therefore we are his. He is our rightful owner. Now, he happens to be loving and good and perfect and, lo and infinitely good. I can, story after story in my life, I can testify to the Lord's goodness that happens to line up with my definition of goodness. Nonetheless, we are his. He bought us with his blood. We are his. He is our Lord. He is our master. His will, not ours. And we must live our lives in a way that brings pleasure to him. Romans 12, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, which is a pretty morbid metaphor to use in a Jewish context. A sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Beloved Christians, people of God, it is both salvation and servanthood. After all, are we not the bondservants of Jesus Christ? The term bondservant is constantly used throughout the New Testament by the apostles. In their writings, referring to themselves, referring to other Christians, it means a person bound in service without wages, a slave or serf to Christ. Again, all in proportionality. There's, there's other verses that push back at this concept. But nonetheless, the apostles constantly refer to themselves as bondservants. What a foreign concept in a spiritual climate where people ransom their faith when God doesn't line up with them. Have you ever encountered that? Someone in your life, maybe, who goes, I wouldn't believe in a God who would. Right? Like, that's... that. That's the level of, of haughtiness that we experience in our culture. Of people going, well, now I don't believe in God. Because this thing happened in my life. A context where people twist their worldview of Christ, but only as needed to suit their proclivities, their risk tolerance, their family schedule, and their modern dispositions. Last scripture that I want to share today, and perhaps the most uh, puzzling for our cultural psyche, is out of Matthew 10. This is Jesus teaching people the truth. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to earth, to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. That, I think that one happens naturally, maybe. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. And so, church, people of God, be alert. Be sober-minded. Hold fast. Do not be swayed by the gods of the age. And do not deny the master for a cheap imitation. Everything that we do, everything that we say, what we put uh, into our minds and bodies, our conduct 24-7, is an ongoing representation of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, who lived a life that we couldn't have lived, and died a death that we deserved, rose from the dead, and chose to put the life of God back in us. He is the only one who has every right to take the throne of our life to be the divine despot to which we are yielded, to whom we are bondservants. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we intend to keep your word close to our hearts in this time of chaos. Please aid us in keeping it. Your guidance, your sight is needed. We want to repent of our sin, and we gladly receive your forgiveness this morning. Instruct each of us individually in this time and this week. We bend the knee to you, King Jesus. No other name. Amen.
Where are the areas where we reason away uh, or uh, allow for sin because life's hard? Because I think God wants me to be emotionally healthy. And, and so I think we need to examine our hearts for those areas of our lives. The, the second area of, of serious consideration that I think comes out of this morning is uh, what's your pursuit of Scripture? In other words, how do you compact the passions and desires that want to lead you in one direction? How do you combat, how do you anchor yourself from being drawn away and having itching ears and seeking out others that agree with you and forming false teachers? It's by an anchoring in Scripture. That is the foundation. It is the Word of God, His instruction for us, His declaration. So uh, right now, I'd like the band maybe to start playing into the, the intro uh, of the first song that we're going to have. And I just want to take a few moments and ask you to reflect on this evening. What's, what's your pursuit of Scripture? What do you pursue after it as an anchor to eternity, to live your
before you, humbly acknowledging that at times, whether willingly, knowingly, or ignorantly, we pursue after the same choice that Adam and Eve did in the garden when they chose to take control for themselves, desiring to have their own sense of knowledge of right or wrong to make the choices for themselves. Father, we ask your forgiveness. We often may pridefully think that if we were back in their position, we would never eat, but yet we do. When we face temptation, when we face our own sense of right and wrong and desires and passions and definitions of love and the things that we'd like to excuse away, we make our own choice and we water down the word of God or outrightly ignore it. So forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, we choose to be your doulos. We choose to be your bondservants. We choose I'd like to invite you to stand as we go into our closing worship set this morning. Uh, again, we have a prayer room in the back. Uh, if you would like a prayer for anything, any need that you have, if you want to go back and, and confess some of this as God works in your heart and ask for prayer from your brothers and sisters, uh, James tells us that there is healing in that confession to one another and praying for one another. I invite you to go back and do that. If there's any other needs, you can do that as well. Otherwise, let's come before God. Let's come to the altar and worship our Lord.